The following audio is a presentation from our Equip study series. In this series, Pastor Josh is walking us through the Lord's Prayer. Would you join us as we learn together in that deep dive of the Lord's Prayer so that we might pray more like Jesus has commanded us to pray? We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. All right, everyone, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, If you need a handout, if you'd like one, they're on the front row. And you'll notice Joseph made it so that if you get bored, you can color in the lines, in the, the hands, the praying hands like we have the elementary schoolers do sometimes. What's up, Dan? Well, let's go ahead and get started. Let's pray together. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer, in case you couldn't guess that one. All right, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. We're going to pray this every week. And I'm curious as we get started um, this evening, it's kind of funny. There's a study on the Lord's Prayer, but tonight, this first night, it's going to be all introductory material. We're not really going to get dive into the prayer itself tonight. Instead, we're going to kind of dance around it, okay? And there's a reason for that. Before, before we get to that, we just did a, a study on prayer last year. We did the praying church. And so my question to you is, when you think about, come on in, Joe. When we think about prayer, I, I know I often do, especially as an American, everything I try and do, I'm like, how can I make this efficient? What can I do to make my prayer more effective. And I'm curious, do you guys ever think about this? What, what, what do you think? And it could be a mistaken, it could be an error in this, right? Or it could be a good thing. What do you think makes your prayers more effective? Do what? For you, yeah. That's why I say it could be a mistaken thing, yeah. Someone's hand go up over here. Bam. What's that? Dedicated a long time? Yeah. What else? Specificity? Yeah. Okay. Being specific about the things you're praying for or being thankful for? Yeah, that's a good one. What's that? Yours was good too, Pam. Well, that that's a good one. I mean... When I think of oftentimes, and to my shame, to my discredit, when I think of how, when I pray, I'm like, I really want God to hear my prayers, even though I wouldn't say this out loud because it's in the Bible, it's in the scripture we're going to read tonight, I often think my prayer needs to be longer than it is, or I need to use words, better words. My vocabulary is terrible. I need to use better words. I need to describe it's kind of the opposite of specificity. I, I, I kind of am just very vague with my prayers. Like sometimes I'll ask for a request, Lord, help me with this. And then I'll be like, 
I feel like I need to clarify what I really want. And it ends up just being this vague prayer and this flowery player, prayer. And oftentimes, I, I, I think a lot of times for me, though, it's because you, know, you read about guys, you hear about guys or, or ladies throughout history that have this amazing prayer life. Uh, Martin Luther was recorded saying this, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I'm talking about in the morning. And I think, who gets up in the morning and spends three hours in prayer, you know? And I don't think about, you don't think about the historical context, and you, and you hear even more. I read about another guy, James Duncan, who says, and for when he preaches, before he does that, he'll pray for 13 consecutive hours. And I'm like, and so we fill our heads with this, okay, if my, if I really want to be filled with the Spirit, if I really want to get what I'm asking for, I need to just buckle down. I need to make my prayers longer. And so that's what happens. When I go to pray, I'll pray for something and I'll think that wasn't long enough. Has that ever happened to you? Like, I feel like I didn't ask enough there. And so, you know, I'll pray for this thing. I'll say, okay, Lord, help me today with this thing at work. But it's this thing, I'm really worried about it, and I just start rambling, and before you know it, my brain's just off track, and I'm not even thinking about the thing I was asking for help with. And and for me, maybe it's not for you, but a lot of times I think, okay, how can I make my prayers more effective? What can I do to really zero in my prayers so that God will hear me? And we're going to learn that that's not the way prayer works, and so when we come to the Lord's Prayer, where, where I would think, oh, prayer needs to be long, because, man, when I, when I come to church, sometimes I hear these great guys up here praying these long prayers, and I'm like, man, I want to pray like that. And so I go home, and I, I just start muttering and babbling and praying on and on and on, and before you know it, I just don't even know what I'm praying for anymore. Just get lost in just this vagueness. And sometimes, and my wife will tell you, you know, I have a chair by like my, my fireplace, and I don't know why I keep going there to pray at night, because if I start praying there, within two minutes, I'm asleep, and I'm, I wake, and just, I snore really bad, so I wake myself up with my snores, all right, and then I feel guilty, I feel terrible, but when we come to the Lord's Prayer, what's the, fir- the first thing I notice when I look at the Lord's Prayer is how short it is. What do you think, like when, when you think of the, if someone brings up the Lord's Prayer to you, when you saw this come up on the screen, we're going to do a study on the Lord's Prayer, what thoughts, what images, what phrases come to your mind? What do you think of when you think of the Lord's Prayer? Rightly or wrongly? Learning it as a child. Learning it as a child, yes. What did, what did you say, Damon? Those hands, yes. The colored in hands, yes. Sweeten to the point. What'd you say? Before football games, okay. Hmm? You think of food? Did you pray, you pray that before meals? Oh, okay, I got you, I got you. I got you. Kyle, there's nothing about football in the Lord's Prayer. I'm just playing. <laughs> what else? Anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of along the lines of you, Chris, I think something you memorize as a child or something 
you've heard a bunch of times. And so every time I come across the Lord's Prayer in Scripture, because it's in Matthew, and that's where we're mainly going to be throughout this study. There's one, and there's a version in Luke as well. It's a little bit shorter. But we're going to stay in Matthew mainly. But when I read this, every time I'm like, you know, I'll read it, part of my Bible reading, but I'm like, I know this. This is just like elementary Christianity. This is just, this is simple, you know. This is just like a stepping stone into prayer, you know. And I hate to admit that to you, but a lot of times that's what I think of. And, and also what I think of, because I watch too many movies, is, you know, any movie with the Catholic priests in it, right? There, someone comes to a confession booth. They confess their sin, and the priest says, okay, I'm going to sign you 10 Hail Marys and 14 Our Fathers. Pray the rosary this many times. And in fact, Joe, I was talking to Joe on the way over here. He grew up Catholic, and that's what happens. If you, if you want to receive grace and forgiveness, it's just this arbitrary, subjective number of how many times you say the Lord's Prayer or, you know, Hail Mary, all, all those things. And it loses its meaning. And so that, a lot of times that's what I, I think of. And so when I think of, well, you know, I'm not a Catholic. You know, I don't say the Lord's Prayer. I don't pray the Lord's Prayer. I don't pay much attention to it because it's something we've heard, I've heard over and over again. It's just, it's something that's rote. You know, it doesn't mean a whole lot. But when we come to the Lord's Prayer and we're going to study this, I hope, one of my greatest hopes is you'll see how much your life, especially your prayer life, your devotional life, and your dependence upon God is wrapped up in this prayer and how this prayer will help you in that. Many commentators on the Lord's Prayer talk about the Lord's Prayer as a, a scaffolding or a handrail, all right, in this tower of prayer to, to help you along. It, it kind of holds and provides a foundation for prayer. It's a model prayer for us. But one thing I want you all to see as we talk about the prayer. Like I said, we're not going to be in the prayer tonight. And the reason for that is because this prayer is situated in a larger sermon. And that sermon is situated in a larger book, the Gospel of Matthew. And by the way, this Sermon on the Mount, okay, it's chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, which is where we're going to be tonight, mainly, is really important for us to understand what Jesus is trying to do in the Sermon on the Mount. It's really important for us to understand the themes and the words that Jesus are using in the Sermon on the Mount. Because the themes that he's preaching throughout the sermon are going to help us understand what he's trying to get us to see in the prayer. And it's going to help us really apply the things in the prayer to our life. So it's not just a rote thing that you're very familiar with and that maybe you do or don't do. Pray or don't pray. And so tonight we're going to be in Matthew first and then uh, drill down a little bit into the sermon as a whole. And, and it's important that when we get to the sermon, you're going to have homework this week, by the way. Get ready. Thought you're out of school? You're not. Okay. So the thing about the sermon, and Pastor Casey has covered a lot of this, what we've on Sunday mornings this past month in January, he spent a lot of time in Matthew in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so some of these themes you've already heard in the sermon, we're going to drill down even more. But one of the points he made, and something that's really helpful, and you don't think that it is, but it is, you'll notice in the Sermon on the Mount that there's our Bibles divided up. And so there's a section on lust. There's a section in the sermon on divorce, on oaths, on retaliation. There's a section on the Lord's Prayer and fasting. Those section headings aren't there, weren't, weren't there. They're there to help us, right? Right? 
and, and they are helpful. But this week, and we'll, I'll mention this again at the end, I want you to listen to the sermon as a whole without stopping. Okay? Because look how this sermon starts in, in chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. It says this, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then he preaches the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, ever. And you'll notice for the next three chapters, yeah, three chapters, five, six, and seven, that there's nothing to break it up. It is all, if your Bible has the red letter, it's all red letters because Jesus is sitting down preaching. It's a whole sermon. And so it's beneficial for us. I debated doing this tonight. Let me just read the thing. We don't have time for that. But I do want you to do that this week. Just sit down and listen to it like you're hearing a sermon on Sunday. You're going to gain a lot from that. And the church, for most of the history of the church, how do they read their Bibles? They heard it. They heard it preached. They heard it read. And the people, Jesus' disciples and the people gathered around him, how did they, they didn't read this sermon. They heard it preached. They heard, they heard Jesus speaking the words of this sermon. All right, so let's start first in Matthew as a whole. Um, just a couple of basic things here. Obviously, the, the author of Matthew is Matthew, uh, the apostle, the, ta- the tax collector. It was written around the last quarter of the first century, so not far removed from Jesus' death and resurrection. And the audience, the church, the people that Matthew is writing to is a mix of Jewish Christians, so Jews who had converted to Christianity, who accepted Jesus as Savior, Messiah, but also Gentiles who have been saved as well. So it's a mixed crowd here, and that's really important for us. But what Matthew is going to do in, in the whole gospel, especially leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, he is organ- th- this isn't just Matthew receiving like, we, we talk about the Bible being inspired. It's not, he's just like, say these words. The Lord, when he inspires the text, it is authoritative, it's infallible, it's inerrant, there are no mistakes, but he uses Matthew and his personality. It's, it's a mysterious way in, in which God writes his word through Matthew. And Matthew is very intentional about how he lays out his gospel. He's not just like, if you asked me to write a story right now, it would not be good because I'm not a very good writer. Okay. I can't, I don't have the ability to, you know, chart the story and think about themes, but Matthew is very intentional when he writes. And for, I want us to understand what he's trying to do so we can understand the Sermon on the Mount and then also so we can understand what he's doing, doing in the Lord's Prayer. So the purpose of Matthew, Matthew writes, this is this first blank. If, you're that kind of, if you want to fill in the blanks, go for it. If not, that's fine too. Matthew writes to show, Je- to show Jesus as the fulfillment of the promised Messiah and King. The people of God are being defined Anew. So this is the purpose of Matthew's writing, okay? It's kind of twofold. He's, he's showing that Jesus is this fulfillment, okay? What do we mean by fulfillment, okay? Well, I mean, you can think about the word fulfillment. You probably can understand what he's trying to say and what he's, what he's meaning. 
But when we talk about in Matthew, we talk about fulfillment is Jesus being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, everything in the Old Testament. And we're going to dive into this theme a little bit more in a second. But also the second part of that is that the people of God are being defined anew. Okay? And so when we read the Old Testament, we see who are the people of God. They're the Israelites, the Hebrews, the chosen people. But we get hints throughout the Old Testament that it's not just going to be ethnic Jews that are going to be the people of God. Because when Jesus comes, he dies, he raises again, and the gospel is not just for the Jews, but is for Gentiles as well. So he's defining his people as those who believe in Jesus. Okay? Even if you're not born of Abraham... Right? He says, Jesus even says that uh, he can raise descendants of Abraham from these stones. And what he means by that is that just because you're not born the bloodline of Abraham doesn't mean you're going to not can't be in the people of God. Jesus defines the people of God as those who would believe and trust in him, those who would follow him, those who believe that he is God, that he died on the cross for their sin and is risen again. And have turned from their sin and put their trust in him. And so Jesus is coming and he's defining who the people of God are. And that's really important because we're going to run into, and in fact, a lot of the sermon is talking is in response to, you know, Pharisees and scribes, these Jewish teachers of the law who say, we're Jews, we're, we're sons of Abraham. We come from Abraham. We are the chosen people of God. And Jesus is going to say, those, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, right? The idea here, those who believe in me and trust in me are going to be this new people of God. This is crazy. And in fact, this is what's going to cause so much contention throughout the gospel is the inclusion of non-Jews into the family of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I just pause there. I mean, just think on that for a second. If you have believed in Christ... You put your trust in him. You are adopted into his family. You are a son of God. And you're going to see this theme all throughout Matthew, that he's defining this people anew. He's very intentional. So Matthew's very intentional about communicating um, aspects about Jesus and his mission. The whole gospel is laid out around Jesus' teaching and revelation. So what I mean by that, we're not going to go through, if you want I have it for you, I have the, a structure laid out, but you'll see that the way Matthew is laid out is that there'll be a section where Jesus has a long stretch of teaching. So like the Sermon on the Mount, he has three chapters of teaching, and then he goes off and it's more action. He goes to this place, he heals people there, he goes to this place and does this, he confronts these people here, and then there's another section of teaching. And then once that teaching is done, he, he lays it out to where Jesus moves on. He goes from this place to this place. So there's this teaching section and then Jesus moves on. And so that's how the whole gospel of Matthew is laid out. But the main themes of Matthew, and, and we'll talk about themes here in a second. The main themes of Matthew are fulfillment and kingdom. Okay? And that's really important for us to know, especially tonight. Kingdom, we're going to talk about in the prayer a little bit more. So I'm not going to touch on that as much. But fulfillment in Matthew is key. Here's why. And it's in your sheet here. Matthew takes his readers, listeners, on a journey leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. These first four chapters of Matthew. 
This is just an example for you of how Matthew is painting Jesus as the fulfillment. But he's going to retell, so this is that next blank, he's retelling the Old Testament story, but where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Okay? Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. So, these first four chapters of Matthew, let's think about it together. These first, let's look at, break it down into two, okay? The first two chapters of Matthew, Matthew is painting Jesus. In fact, let me just turn there. The very first verse of Matthew He shows his hand here. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus is already tying, or sorry, Matthew's tying Jesus. Hey, he's this promised one. He's of the line of Abraham. Because what happened? In the Old Testament, God promised Abraham one day someone would come from your line. Actually, before that, even in Genesis chapter 3, he says one day someone's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And you get hints of that all throughout the Old Testament. And then first verse of Matthew, after 400 years of silence, no prophecy, no hearing from God, first verse of Matthew, you have this, the promised Messiah has come, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that's letting this hearers know, hey, this isn't just some rogue guy out here. No, this is all part of the same story. And what he's going to do in Matthew chapter 1, we talk about the virgin birth and then how they're in trouble because Herod is calling, he's trying to kill all uh, the children, well not all the children, but the firstborn uh, in, um, in the area. And that is painting a picture because what happened with Moses, all right? So if you go to Exodus chapter 1, you see almost a mirror of what's happening. So if you read Exodus chapter 1 and 2 and compare it to Matthew chapter 1 and 2, Matthew is retelling that story, but with Jesus as the better Moses. Because Jesus, like Pharaoh, tries to kill and Moses escapes through it, escapes through the persecution. But when we get to Matthew, they, they try to, Herod gets nervous. He hears about Jesus being born, this promised Messiah. And so he tries to get rid. And so they flee to Egypt. And so it's this picture. Matthew is helping us see, hey, Jesus is the better and new Moses. But not only that, when we get to chapter three and four, we see a new Exodus. So again, he's retelling the Old Testament story, but where Israel messed up, because what happened in the Old Testament? Moses comes, he's, he leads the people out, the Israelites out of Egypt, out of their slavery, and where? Into the where? The wilderness. And there, even after God saved his people, they get into the wilderness, and what do they do? Is everything good? No. They disobey God over And over again, God provides them food and they complain about it. They grumble. They're unfaithful. But when we see Jesus, who in chapter 4, and Joe preached this not so long ago, in in Matthew chapter 4, we see this Jesus going to the wilderness to be tempted and tried, just as Israel was in the wilderness. But Jesus didn't fail. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And so you see how Matthew is trying to paint Jesus. Hey, this isn't just some made-up story about this random guy from Nazareth. No, this is the culmination, the fulfillment of what you know because his listeners, his hearers would know the Old Testament really well. 
They would know the Exodus. They would know Moses. And he's painting this. He's painting Jesus to to this church, to these Christians, as a new, a better Moses and a new Exodus. And then that brings us to the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at the sermon as a whole. This is where we're going to spend uh, most of our time tonight. And you say, well, if we're doing the Lord's Prayer, what's the, why are we looking at the Sermon on the Mount? Well, well, first of all, the Lord's Prayer is at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. And folks, that's not on accident. That's on purpose. Matthew situates the Lord's Prayer in the center. But before we get to the Lord's Prayer and, and for us to really get all there is from it and to understand it, we have to understand some of these themes that are being talked about in the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew uses or that Jesus uses. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover a few themes here. And you might ask, well, okay, what are themes, like, why are themes so important? Well, themes, they give a framework by which to interpret and understand a story or a sermon so that words, phrases, ideas are seen in light of the purpose and application. A theme gives you a framework, right, to understand what's being talked about in the sermon, what's being preached in the sermon. And some of the ideas that when we read this text, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, there's sections in here you read, you're like, that seems impossible. Or what does this even, it's because, you know, we're far removed from it. So we have to do some work to understand what Jesus is actually doing. And so again, we're going to drill down in the sermon on fulfillment. Jesus, we talked about, is the new and greater Moses. So it's important for us to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment where if you look on in Exodus 19, Moses, that's the section on the Ten Commandments. Where does Moses? Moses goes up onto the mountain. And so when you look in the Old Testament, mountains are really important. Okay? You'll see it over and over again. These mountains stand for this. It's almost like an authoritative figure. It's where revelation from God happens. Think about Abraham and Isaac that go up on Mount Moriah. And he goes to sacrifice Isaac. And we, he hears from God. And he provides a substitute. Or when, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to what? Get the law of God so that the people can know who their God is. And so that first verse in chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Guys, that first verse is loaded with meaning for us to read. Because Jesus is being presented as this greater prophet, this promised prophet who was to come. And we're not going to look at all the references. I put them there for you. You can look in Isaiah 61. But not only that, Jesus is the perfect moral model. And again, we could say a lot of things about Jesus. We're not going to exhaust everything Matthew has to say about Jesus. But just things that I think are important for us to know as we look at the Lord's Prayer. And so Jesus has this perfect moral model. And we, and we get kind of nervous about that because we're like, well, Jesus was more than a moral teacher. Absolutely, right? We know that. He didn't just come and teach good things like laws and stuff. He didn't just teach a good way to live, right? He, he's the savior of the world. He is God himself. But he also came and he invites us to live in a certain way. The next, so the next thing we have is greater righteousness and obedience. And this is one Pastor Casey talked about quite a bit. Uh, I can't remember, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. 
um, when he was in Matthew 6. But this is a really, really important theme. And we're going to zero in on, on a couple words here. The first thing is the heart. The heart. How do we commonly use this word, the heart? Like when you think about the heart, what do you think of? Just when you use it, when you hear it out in your life, what do you think of when you think of the heart? What did you say? I'm sorry? Love. Okay, love. Center. Okay. What else? Desire. Yeah. Your emotions. Yeah. Right. You get that from any song, right? You, you, I mean, pick a song, right? Or like even our language sometimes, like what's someone who has a bleeding heart? Someone who's very sensitive, you know, very in touch with their emotions are very tender. And so we use heart certain ways. And you, you said love as well. And I would say oftentimes we use heart to mean love and love is very cheap. Like we, you, you go on the radio and you'll hear songs about the heart and love and it's like this very shallow version of it. It's almost a lustful version. It's almost a one-sided version of it. But when the Bible uses heart, it's talking about something, especially when Jesus uses heart in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's a little bit different than how we would put it together. We, we typically think of it as the seat of our emotions, how, where, where our emotions flow from. We think about a broken heart. You broke my heart. Like when I, okay, I had a girlfriend when I was in eighth grade, and I dated her once, uh, or we, we were dating, and what'd you say? Well, that's what, you ruined my story. Thanks, Lee. I, 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 I dated her once, and she broke up with me, and that was my first girlfriend, and I, I cried, and I was like, she's so pretty, you know? I was very shallow. It broke my heart. We didn't even go on a date yet. And then two years later, she came back around in my life. And then guess what? We dated again. And then guess what? She broke up with me again. And I just remember just, I, I would go in my room, very angsty, shut the door, play like some alternative rock, just sit in my room, just let the, the, the rain hit my window. Just, I mean, that, that's what we think of like when we think of like a broken heart or love. That's how we think of the heart. But the heart used in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount is a little bit different. I, I love what, uh, I can't say his last name. I want to just call him Walter. Walter says here, a comprehensive term for the personality as a whole. It's inner life. It's character. And so scripture uses heart a little bit different than, than we use. And in fact, the word heart in the Greek Old Testament is used 900 times, the sense of the word. And just the New Testament, it's used 150 times with the same meaning, the same meaning of this inner whole person, this, the character, the, who you really are, who you really are, not just who you say you are, not just who you pretend to be, but who you really are as a whole person, who you are when no one is around, who you are when people are around. 
And so it, it has a more whole meaning when we look in Scripture. And Scripture has a lot to say about the heart. I'm going to read a few verses. And, and by the way, I'll suggest this book. It's called Keeping the Heart. It's by a Puritan by John Flavel. But he, he writes a little book on one verse, and that verse is Proverbs 4.28. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. I love that. For from the heart flow the springs of life. And so you get a more rounded image of what the heart is, what it's being communicated. It's not just my emotions, but it's who I am. Everything about my life flows from the heart. Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall, you know this one, Jesus uses it too a little bit later, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So that's kind of a negative version, but still illustrating it. Because in there, Isaiah is saying, hey, you do all these things that are good. You honor me with your speech and, and with your actions, but your heart is far from me. Who you really are is far from me. And then finally, we see it all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, you see this idea when you come to, uh, especially on lust in chapter 5. I'll read it for you. You've heard that it's, this is Jesus preaching. You've heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, when, when they heard do, the Old Testament command, do not commit adultery, they're saying, great, what? I've never committed adultery. But Jesus says, if you have looked at a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. You've still broken the law. And he keeps going when he, when he talks about retaliation and loving your enemies. But this is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on He is just zeroing in on the heart. He's trying to get past all the external righteous things that people do. So like for us, like when you think of righteous acts, you're thinking of, oh, I come to church read my Bible, I pray, I give money to this thing, maybe I serve at the food pantry, I do all these good things. But Jesus, and those are good things, I don't want to disqualify those, those are great things, but Jesus sees the heart. Jesus sees who you really are, and when he's preaching this sermon, he's trying to get you to see the heart, who you really are as a person, as the whole man or woman. The next uh, theme is a greater righteousness. This is kind of the key to the whole Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read, uh, and Pastor Casey read this and explained it really well, so if I don't, you can go listen to him in this sermon. But uh, five chapter, or sorry, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, this is a foundational thing to understand for the whole sermon. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, to do away with them, okay, but to fulfill them. There's fulfillment. I've not come to get rid of all the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And here it is. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And to just hear that would sound hopeless. Because the the scribes and the Pharisees were like the holy men of the day. They knew the law of God. Many of them had sections of it committed to memory. Old Testament sections committed to memory. They did all the right things. They knew a lot of the answers. They were the conservative Bible believers of the day. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds them, is better than them, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that? Well, let's talk about what righteousness is. When we, a lot of times when we think about righteousness, when we talk in terms of righteousness as Christians, we think about what Jesus has done for us, okay? Because here's, here's the truth. We were sinners, unrighteous. Jesus saved us. He was perfectly righteous. And when he saved us, he gave us his righteousness. And so we are righteous in right standing before God. So in terms of, we think about it in terms of standing before God. Once we were separated from God, we were alienated from God, we were enemies of God, but when we have put our trust in Jesus, we have been made right with God. That's a lot of times we think about righteousness, we think about it in those terms, that we have been made right with God. And that's true, and that's good. But Jesus is going to use righteousness here differently, a little bit differently, you can see, I mean, you can read it here. He's not really talking about that. So what is it that he's talking about? Really, this greater righteousness is, is doing the will of God. Uh, Jonathan Pennington uh, writes this. It's not merely external piety. It's not just merely external, your acts before God. But it is the faithful purity and integrity of the inner person, the heart. And so it's it's. Walking in line with God's righteousness is walking in line with God's will as a whole person, who you are as a person in line with God. Because what he's doing, he's trying to cut down this idea that, that most people have, like, oh, look at the Pharisees. They, have, they, they do so much. I can never do that. But Jesus is going to turn it on the Pharisees later and say, and call them hypocrites. And we'll get to that in a second. Because he wants who we really are, who our hearts, or what our hearts are. He wants our heart. He sees our heart. Righteousness, not just in terms of staying before God. And Jonathan Pennington says it again here, whole person behavior, and this is in your handout, that accords with God's nature, will, and the coming kingdom. So it's a whole, when we talk about this greater righteousness, it's this whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, his will, and the coming kingdom. And so Jesus is preaching this greater righteousness all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he's talking about. This life, this invitation to live in accordance with God's will as we're meant to live with his wisdom. The next theme is wholeness, and this goes right alongside of that. But when we talk about wholeness, we go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. And this is the verse you probably get to in your Bible reading, and you're like, I'm just going to skip over this, because I don't, it can't mean perfect, but I don't know what it means. Well, Matthew 5, 48 says this, 
at the end of the section in chapter 5, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But what math or what Jesus is talking about here is not, and this is your next blank, is not moral perfection, but, ra- but rather wholeness. Or as Pastor Casey, I never heard anyone say this, but congruency, meaning wholeness as a person. Who you are externally on the outside matches who you are on the inside. Matches who you really are as a whole person. And so the word there, perfect, is a really bad word, okay, for, for here, all right? It's just the closest we have. The word in Greek is teleos, and what it's really trying to com- say there is you therefore must be whole as your heavenly Father is perfectly whole. We're not talking about just moral perfection, because obviously that's impossible for us. Even as Christians, we're going to sin. But are we holy? The Lord's, are we wholly follow, following Christ? And it's a play. If you remember the, the scripture from Leviticus chapter 20, where God says, you therefore must be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. Jesus is taking that here and applying it differently. Because in Leviticus, he is talking about God being separate, being holy and perfect. But here, Jesus is bringing out this other meaning, being whole, this whole person. And again, I'm going to read, I, I kind of got ahead of myself, but I want to read this again. Whole, whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. I mean, that's what he's talking about here. It's the key to the whole sermon. So Jesus paints this picture of what a whole Christian looks like. But if, you, if we turn back to chapter 5, this whole follower of Christ looks like, we go to chapter 5. We're going to see the next theme, and that's flourishing. All right, so what we've covered in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is showing, or the themes of it are Jesus as the fulfillment. Jesus teaches this greater righteousness and obedience to his will and to the way he's laid out the universe to live in according to his wisdom and what is right. But also we see another theme, and that's flourishing. Oh, I'm sorry, let's back up. I forgot about hypocrisy. So we talked about wholeness of person, but hypocrisy is the opposite of that. And so when we, when we talk about hypocrisy, typically, we say hypocrisy is doing, saying one thing and doing the other. So an example of that is, if I preach to you, men, do not cheat on your wives. Be sexually pure. Okay? But then in my personal life, I cheat on my wife, over and over again, that would, we would call that being a hypocrite. It's saying, preaching one thing, saying one thing, but yet doing another. And that is true, but again, there's a little bit of nuance to this word. When Jesus uses the word hypocrisy, especially when leading up to the Lord's Prayer, he's using it a little differently. He's using it as this doubleness of the inner person who performs righteous acts, but for the wrong motives. And so it's not just saying one thing and doing another, but it's doing good and righteous things for the wrong motive. And this isn't hard for us to think of, okay? I can think of many times in my life where I've done this, and there's always one that comes to the top of my mind. I've shared it multiple times here, only because it's always on my mind. I wish I can go back and <laughs> redo this. But like my dad, he one time I wanted to go out, 
hang out with my friends. It was Florida, middle of the summer, and I wanted to go see a movie with my friends that night. I had to ask, Dad, can I have the car and go see a movie with my friends? And he said, sure, but first you got to mow the lawn. We lived on two acres, or no, it was just an acre, sorry. Lived on an acre, felt like two, because it was hot. Uh, and it's just push mower, and it's not that big of a deal, guys. But for me, dramatic, angsty teenager, want to hang out with my friends. It's hot outside. I'm a big guy. I did not want to do that. And I was like, can I just do it tomorrow? And he was like, no, if you want to go, this is the condition. You need to go cut your grass. And so I begrudgingly did obey him and did what he asked me to do. And the whole time I was just mad. <laughs> I'm sweating. I'm mad. I'm tired. By the time I'm done, I just want to take a nap. I don't even want to go out anymore. And so even though I obeyed what my dad told me to do, I, I obeyed him. My heart was still far from him. And so you see this hypocrisy, this doubleness of the person. Well, I did what I was supposed to do, okay, yet I was far from him. And that's what Jesus is going to call out in the Pharisees and the scribes. He's going to call them hypocrites, and that's what he means by this. And we'll see that uh, here in a second. And really the source of it is just vainglory. And when you get to chapter 6, where he talks about, um, in chapter 6, where he talks about giving, where he talks about praying in front of others so that you may be seen by others, right? That's hypocrisy. He calls that out as hypocrisy. Why? It's good to pray. And he's definitely not saying you shouldn't pray in front of people. Because all throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, there's all kinds of scenarios where people are praying with other people. He's not saying you should never pray in front of people. No, what is he doing? He's taking aim at the heart of the hypocrites who love to stand in front of people and offer these long, drawn-out prayers using these beautiful words. But what's their motive? Their motive is to be seen by others. It's not a righteous motive. It's not a motive that is devoted or oriented towards God. It's a, it's a motive oriented towards self. So even though it's a good thing, the motive itself is wrong. And that could be applied. He applies it here, you know, with fasting. Same thing when he talks about people who are fasting and they come in. And like if you were to fast, you came into church and you're just like, oh, man, I've just been fasting. You know, I haven't eaten since three weeks ago. Just really been praying on my face, you know, outside in the cold and the snow. And, you know, that, those are good things, right? But when you come in like that, what are you really trying to do? All right, this one, step on some toes here. But this is one, this is a temptation for all of us. When we get on social media and we post our righteousness on social media, okay, our temptation is the same. Now, I'm not saying, again, like Jesus is saying, I'm not saying we can't post things that we're, we're doing as a church, or if you read a scripture you want to scare, share it on social media, but it's important to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Am I doing it so that others will see me? I still remember a post I made when I had Instagram. I got it for the first time years ago, and I, it was in James, and I like underlined it, I put a filter on it. So I showed that I underlined it with my blue pen, I put this really nice filter around it, and I just posted it. And I was like, like in my, like I wasn't saying this out loud, but in my head I was like, yeah. <laughs> you know? 
That is just double, like, obviously my motives are for me, okay? So even though sharing scripture on social media is a good thing, my motive, my heart was not, I didn't do it to please God. I didn't do it to share the gospel with anyone. I did it so that people would think I'm spiritual and that I know things. And so Jesus is checking all that in the sermon. He's checking all that as we come to the Sermon on the Mount. But let's go to that next theme. All right, now we're at it, flourishing. And this is a really important uh, theme in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in chapter 5, when we read the Beatitudes. And that, those start in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. And then it, it goes on and on. We don't have time to cover all of them. And it's this beautiful section. We have a temptation as Christians. We, we hear the word blessed, and we have this view of what that means in our, in our mind. Like if I say be blessed, typically like what I'm thinking is that God would divinely act upon it, give me a blessing of some sort. Like God is doing it. And that's that next blank there. Blessings and curses. So you have blessing on this side. The opposite of that is a curse. These communicate divine effect. So God affecting something on a person. A curse or a blessing. So something happening to me. And so if we read this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't really line up with what Jesus is trying to say with the Beatitudes. And the reason is because well, it's not really, we don't have a word in English that captures this word, okay? Some, maybe your translations say, happy are the poor in spirit, or happy are those who mourn. That's another translation a lot of the times. But again, that definitely doesn't really capture it. There's a little more of nuance to this word, blessed. Jonathan Pennington helpfully calls it a macarism. It comes from the word makarios, and what it does is that, and this is your next thing, it's a description of the state of a person. And for help, I'm going to read Psalm 1, okay? Because it's the same idea in Psalm 1, and we use the English word blessed in Psalm 1 as well. And I think a lot of us are familiar with this. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What that psalm isn't saying is, hey, if you, walk in the count, if you don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, uh, nor if you don't stand in the way of sinners, if you don't sit in the seat of scoffers, God's going like, to bless you. Instead, what's trying to be communicated there is it's inviting you to look at the life of this man, this blessed man. This man, look at his life. It's a life of not walking in the counsel of the wicked. It's a life of not standing in the way of sinners, nor sitting in the seas. It's a life of delighting, continual life of delighting in the law of the Lord. It's a description of a life. It's a description of a life, okay? It's a description of the state of a person. And I like what Jonathan Pennington says, because he, he, when he retranslates this, he, instead of blessed, he uses flourishing. Because that really communicates what the word is trying to tell us, or, or what this passage is trying to tell us. Not just God's going to bless you if you're poor in spirit. God's going to bless you if you mourn. God's going to bless you if you're meek. God's going to bless you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not really what's being communicated here. Instead, he's saying, look, look at this life. Look at this way of living. Look at the poor in spirit. 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at the state of those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And it's this life of wholehearted dependence and devotion to God. And Jesus is saying, this is what the flourish, if you want to know what a flourishing life, a life meant to be lived looks like, look at the Beatitudes. This is what a flourishing life is. It looks like this. It looks like this. It looks like the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It looks like the pure in heart, for they shall, be, they shall see God. And so when, when Jesus is preaching the Beatitudes, when he's preaching the sermon, he's inviting us into this way of living, this invitation into the way we live. And, and kind of the opposite of a macroism would be a woe. So if you turn, I'm not going to turn there, we don't have enough time, but if you go to Matthew chapter 23, 23 there's a whole list of woes. And it's harsh. It's Jesus saying, woe are you, woe are you, woe are you. All right, I'm going to read one. We got to read one, Okay. Because it describes the opposite of what he's talking about. Again, it's a state. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Yikes. He's saying, look, you should have this life let that is characteristic of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Instead, you are the opposite. Again, it's a description. Okay? And the other two themes, uh, the next one is reward and recompense. And again, we don't have, we only have a few minutes left. That's um, another big theme. Like it's, there is reward. Like Jesus talks about reward. And again, Pastor Casey explain that really well in his sermon on this text in Matthew chapter 6. So we don't have enough time to really cover that. We could talk about that afterward if you like. And then also heaven and earth is a big theme in the sermon and, and really all of Matthew. And we're going to talk about that more when we actually get into the sermon. But finally, finally we, we come to the Lord's Prayer and the first thing to note that I, I noted at the beginning is the brevity of the prayer. Like you look at it, look how short it is. And when I look at this, it's just like the key difference I, I see between when you look in scripture and you look at other examples of pagan rituals and prayers at the time. Prayers to the one true living God is so much different than other pagan prayers. A lot of the times you see in, in when Paul's in Ephesus or even the Old Testament, these pagans are trying to just like, they're trying to manipulate, they're, they're trying to get their God's attention by just repeating the same things over and over again. Recently, I heard a church youth group uh, on the internet, of course, and the song, I don't know what the song was, never heard it. I hope I never hear it again. And the lyrics of the song were, Jesus, you're really good bread. You're really, really, really good bread. But then there was no other words. It was, Jesus, you're really good bread. You're really, 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 really good bread. Jesus, you're really good bread. You're really, really good bread. And like, I kid you not, I was like, I'm waiting for the beat to drop or something, a breakdown, going to halftime. Nope, it's just the same thing over. And the, as far as they keep going, they get more worked up, and they're just jumping around. Jesus, you're really good bread. Really, really, really good bread. And again, like, Jesus is the bread of life. That's truth. But it's just, they're trying to work themselves up, and it's almost like you're trying to get God's attention. But... Church, this is the amazing thing about the Lord's Prayer. In verse 8, 
Jesus says this, do not be like them, the hypocrites, the ones that mount up words and words who babble, trying to get their God's attention. Why? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Before you even get on your knees or before you even close your eyes, before you even say your first word of your prayer, your father in heaven already knows what you need. And you say, well, then what's the point of praying? Because praying is for you. When we pray, it's helping us, it's training us to depend and trust in God. He already knows what we're going to ask, and he wants us to come to him because he is our father. He's not like other pagan gods who require you to, like Molech in the Old Testament requires you to sacrifice your children in order to get his attention. Or like Elijah versus the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament. The prophets of Baal spend half a day just saying the same thing over and over again, trying to get their false gods to rain down fire. They're cutting themselves, trying to manipulate their gods. Hey, look what we're doing. Come and you do something for us. That's not our God. Our God already knows what we need before we ask him. And that's really key as we come to the prayer we come to the Lord's Prayer is to know that fact and to know that He knows us and who we are. And we can lean and trust in Him because prayer is for us. We can't manipulate a sovereign God. We can't manipulate Him, our Father. The second thing I just wanted you to see in the Lord's Prayer, just as an overview of it, is if you notice when, when we read the Lord's Prayer, you see our, us, we. It's not my Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day this daily bread and forgive me of my debts as, we, as, as I also have forgiven my debts. It's a, it's a we, it's us. It's a communal prayer. Uh, church father Cyprian said this, I believe second century. Our prayer is common and collective, maybe third. Our prayer is common and collective. And when we pray, we pray not for one, but for all people, meaning all people in Christ, because we are all one people together. The God of peace and master of concord, who taught us that we should be united, wanted one to pray in this banner for all, as he himself bore all in one. It's it's a communal prayer. And also that next thing, we, we already mentioned this. The Lord's Prayer is at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? It's at the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Of the greatest sermon ever preached. And this arrangement matters because of everything we talked about, of all these words and themes that we've talked about, they're going to carry over into the Lord's Prayer. And unless we have an understanding of what Jesus is trying to do in the sermon, we're just going to have a very superficial, shallow understanding of what the Lord's Prayer is and what it's for. And then finally, some of the themes, I just listed some of the themes of this prayer, the Lord's Prayer. We're going to talk about, and again, this isn't an exhaustive list, but the fatherhood of God. That's next week. The fatherhood of God, the holiness of God, the coming kingdom Daily needs, forgiveness of sin, overcoming temptation. Do you see how this is like a model for our prayer? It's a great model and framework for our prayer. And so next week, we're going to cover just, we're going to go really verse by verse. We're going to cover verse 9 next week. That's it. 
But what I want you to do this week, find an audio Bible or better yet, have someone read it out loud to you. Okay. I want you to read here the whole sermon, Matthew five through seven, hear the whole sermon, not broken up, but as it was heard then to his followers. All right, let's pray together. And then if if we want to talk about any of those things, we can talk after. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You were the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 6 Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you.
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Chapter 7 Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. 
Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone, then, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7 through 7. 